Well, we're in Revelation chapter 20 tonight, and uh, uh, here we are, we're in the millennial reign of Christ, and we're going to kind of sort through some of this stuff. So I'm going to go ahead and start by reading it first, and then uh, then we'll get into studying this, this passage. So Revelation chapter 20 and verse 1, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Verse 4. Then I saw... Thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. May God have his blessing the reading of his holy word. Lord God, we just thank you. We thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, we just ask you to give us understanding. Lord, transform us. Make us more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we just pray now that you'd open up your word, apply it to our lives so that we may go and do it. And we ask this in your your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, So I was reading about the uh, Minutemen of Lexington and Concord, and, and of course, the Minutemen was uh, were, were part of the Revolutionary War. In fact, they were a vital part of our independence. In fact, you you could say that they were they were one of the key factors in America becoming an independent nation for England. The Minutemen were put together by General Gage one year prior to the Briti- the first skirmish or battle of the Revolutionary War. Uh, General Gage saw the need as tensions were rising between the British Empire and the colonies to, to, to put together a group of, of just farmers, tradesmen, whatever it was, that on a minute's notice could be called to arms and be ready to defend their territory. And so, so they practiced and they prepared. They knew that a fight possibly was coming. No one wanted it, of course, especially with an army like Great Britain. I mean... Think about all the battles they had fought. They're professional soldiers, but these Minutemen practiced and prepared and mobilized 
Well, finally on April 19th, which we're coming up on the anniversary here, 1775, the British landed. And, of course, Paul Revere on his midnight ride went announcing that the British were coming and preparing everybody. The, the Minutemen mobilized. Uh, a small group of, uh, of about 77 went to Lexington, and they hung out there with their muskets in a tavern waiting for the 700-man army of the British to show up. What were the British going to do? Well, they were going to confiscate weapons. They also realized that the best way to, to, to control the colonies and to put them back under, under control is take away their weapons, take away the fight before it started. Well, those, those 77 men met with the British. They came out of the tavern, the 700 British, the 77 Minutemen, and no one knows who fired that first shot. In fact, it's often called the shot heard around the world because somebody fired it. Either the Minutemen or the British, we don't know. But that started the skirmish. Eight Minutemen died. The rest, many were wounded. And the British were able to take out that small group. But see, that small group was vital. Those few 77 that were willing and prepared and ready were able to hold up the British long enough so the larger group in Concord could prepare. So the British uh, marched on towards Concord. There they met the rest of the militia group, the rest of these Minutemen, these farmers and tradesmen. And there they were defeated. To, to the surprise of the Minutemen themselves, nobody expected that they would actually beat the British army, a professional army, but they did. The Minutemen knew their purpose. They had a plan and they prepared for it. You know, tonight as we get into the study, I want to encourage you to know your purpose to know God's purpose for all these things, and to plan and prepare for it. So that's what we're going to be looking at as we look at the millennial reign of Christ in this passage. Now, we've got to sort out a couple things real quick here, and, and I hope you'll hang in with me. We're going to get a little technical here. But when we talk about the millennium, and often when we talk about eschatology, the common uh, position is to go, uh, it's going to happen somehow. I don't know, post-mill, pre-mill, ah-mill, whatever mill. I don't even know what a mill is. Maybe you're even pan-mill. It will all pan out in the end, right? Um, <laughs> but but I, I'll tell you right now, I want to go through these views. The first view is amillennial that I want to share about. And the amillennial view, it, every view is in reference to when Jesus returns, okay? So that's your anchor point. The amillennial view is really with the Greek prefix ah, meaning no. And, and what it's saying is that, the, the millennial reign of Christ, that thousand-year reign of Christ that we just read about in Revelation 20 is more figurative. It's allegorical. It won't actually happen, but rather it, it's kind of happening right now. We're, Satan is bound right now, and the gospel is going forth, and the church, is, the church is bringing out the gospel message. And then at the end, Jesus will return. This message was, was really promoted and, and founded in Augustine, St. Augustine. And um, when he was writing, he was really kind of the only theologian in the church at the time, at least the, the most respected theologian. But we have to understand that Augustine, when he was writing his book, City of God, that really promoted this view of millennialism, there was no Israel. Israel had been wiped off the map. They were gone. And so he's, he's trying to put together all these 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 passages and all these prophecies, and he arrives at the amillennial view where the church kind of replaces Israel, and, and, and there's not a literal millennial reign. Of course, his view carried over into the reformers. You've got to remember, the reformers, for the most part, 
were influenced by the Catholic Church. And, and they were breaking away from it. They weren't concerned with eschatology or the end times. They were concerned with soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, and that salvation is by grace alone through Jesus Christ and not by any work that man can do. That was the main concern there. So the amillennial view just continued on for many years. And still today it's a very popular view. The second view is postmillennial. This view was really popular among the Puritans. The Puritans, uh, of course, when they came over from England and, and they left England because of religious persecution and they, they started setting up towns and whatnot and they, they, they founded these things on the principles of Christianity and the worldview of Christianity, biblical views. And, and, and their view is that, that eventually the gospel will just continue going forth throughout the earth and, and so much so that eventually everybody's going to accept it and, and then we'll have a thousand year period of peace with Christ reigning, not literally here on earth, but from heaven. And, uh, and we're going to usher in this thousand year peace program. And then Christ returns after this millennial period, this thousand year period. And that view, it's a really positive view. I mean, it sounds really good. Because it sounds like, yes, we win. <laughs> Eventually we're going to really make headway here and, and, uh, and, and we're going to see all these things change. And it's a wonderful positive view. But it's not quite what we see happening in our world today, is it? And uh, finally there's the premillennial view. And by the way, there are little subsets in these views. And before I get into the premillennial view, I want to I share this with you. First of all, you may be amill, you may be postmill, you may be premill. Um, you know what, we're all brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, it's cool, we can talk about it, okay. This is not something that we're going to, the hill we're going to die on, so to speak, okay. But I do want to say this, I think the premillennial view is the best view and has the most explanatory scope for the scriptures. And I'll give parts of my view. However, I don't have enough time tonight to get into all of it, okay. We just don't. But I want to invite you to open up the conversation with us. If you want to talk about this later, I invite you. Let's, let's talk about it. Let's meet up. Let's talk about it. I love talking about the Lord. I love talking about His Word. And uh, often uh, I have a friend in Utah, and he has a little differing view from me. He's a pastor in Utah. And uh, every year we get together with our families and we will stay at a house or whatever, meet up. And uh, our wives go off and we talk about eschatology. <laughs> like we go back and forth about eschatology. So we're, we're, we're still having this wonderful discussion as we go. Uh, he just doesn't know I'm right yet. Uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> but here's the deal. Ultimately, Jesus is right. Okay. And, and, and it's all going to work out. That's true. But I think God's word has given us some strong indicators that we can, we can hold on to. So what is premillennial? Premillennial is the view that, that um, Jesus Christ returns with his second coming at the, before the millennial reign of Christ. That he's literally going to set up a reign here on earth, a kingdom. He will be reigning from Jerusalem and all the earth will be subjected to him. He'll, he'll literally set up a political power here on earth for a thousand years. And that's the premillennial view. Of course, we, we have the tribulation period, then we have the return of Christ, and then we have the thousand-year reign of Christ. So, with that said, let's get into this a little bit. Um, 
John says, then I saw. Then I saw. What happened before that? If you remember last week, heaven split open and there was a rider on a white horse. Jesus Christ. Okay, that's who it was. It was Jesus Christ. And, and with him, there was a, a multitude of people clothed in white linen coming with him, ready to do battle. That's us, the church. Okay, we're all ready to come in with him. And, 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 and he's meeting the Antichrist and the beast on the field of battle. And, and what we find is that we don't really get to mix it up. As much as I'd want to, I, 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 we don't get to do that. Jesus is going to have the sword of his mouth. He's going to speak and it's all going to be over. <laughs> he wins the day. Jesus always wins, okay. And this whole book is about Jesus Christ. So he, he wins the day. He takes the Antichrist and he boots him. Go, right, right into the burning lake of sulfur. He, he puts him right in the burning lake of sulfur. First guy to get to hell is the Antichrist, okay. That's the first guy. Second guy to get to hell is the false prophet. Jesus takes him and he drop kicks him right into the burning lake of sulfur. By the way, this is my interpretation, okay. So, and, and, and by the way, Chuck Norris has got nothing on Jesus. Okay, I just want to make sure we're clear on that. So they all go into the burning lake of sulfur. Then John sees the angel coming down. He sees the angel coming down with a key to the bottomless pit or the abyss, um, which is that same pit that we saw earlier in Revelation that all these demons were released from. They were, uh, and remember Apollyon, the destroyer, was released from. Satan released those, those demons before. Now we see Satan being bound and thrown into the pit. What about this great chain thing? You know, all millennials and post-millennials will use this as an argument against the pre-millennial camp. And by the way, we're all one camp. We just differ on some of these views. But they'll say, come on, Dave, a chain? Okay, how big is a chain to bind up Satan? And here's the thing. It's not like the angel goes to Home Depot and buys a chain, okay? That's not what we're talking about. I don't know what the chain looks like. I don't know how this happens. But I get the the text. I understand what the text is saying. And the text is saying that Satan will be bound up for a thousand years. Now, just to illustrate my point about how we, why we we take this view, is um, I read a newspaper article yesterday. And the, the title of this article was, Wind Advisory, but Low Level, It Won't Blow Your Socks Off. Boy. Man, I was ready to get the duct tape going and tape up my socks onto me because you never know when the winds are going to get so high that your socks are going to be blown off, right? Well, we approach, when we read newspapers and periodicals, when we hear news reports, we can recognize and distinguish when something's metaphorical or hyperbole. We, we understand, we, there's a hermeneutic that we approach that with. And what, what is hermeneutic? Well, it's the art and science of interpretation and application. And you and I use a hermeneutic with everything we read, everything we take in. We, we're always doing this constantly. And in fact, what we do is we go, okay, so high winds, blow your socks off. Oh, that was funny. You know, obviously it's not really blowing your socks off. And, and the, this article goes on to say, morning winds in Irvine hit 30 miles per hour but tapered off in the afternoon. John Wayne Airport was saw a breezy 21 miles per hour. When I read that, I don't go, oh, hey, everybody, did you know Irvine had 60 mile an hour winds? 
you're saying, no, you just read it. It said 30 miles an hour. Well, yeah, but that's figurative. It's probably more like 60, right? No, we don't do that. In fact, it says um, in Orange County area, the Santa Ana Mountains uh, endured the strongest winds, logging 64 miles per hour at Pleasant's Peak. Did you know we had a hurricane yesterday in Orange County? No, we didn't. We just had high winds. Well, I'm, well, y- y- yeah, it said that, but it doesn't really mean that. What it means is a hurricane. You guys are thinking, I think I'm crazy. We do this all the time with everything we read, but when it comes to the Bible, we go, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> I don't understand it. Well, it can't possibly mean, mean that Satan is actually bound. It's got to mean something else. And, and we start throwing out that same hermeneutic. Listen, we, there are some things that are tough to understand in the Bible, but for the most part, we can get the context, we can get the plain sense of the Word of God, and we can understand it. So I, I want to challenge you guys with the premillennial view, that's what it is. The plain sense makes sense, so keep it. That's what we're trying to do. Take a literal view to the Scriptures. So what's up with Satan being bound? Well, first of all, I'll tell you right now, if Satan is bound right now, we're in trouble. If Satan is bound right now, do you, do you see what it says? It says that the nations will no longer be deceived. Do you believe that? Is that happening now? Because I don't know about you, but in our own country alone, we see more and more deception setting in. What we see is, is those who would call lies truth and those who call truth lies. We see good called evil and evil called good. I shared what happened with Georgia. We see corporations trying to dictate our moral values to us. This is deception. And, and a lot of times as Christians, we're like, wait, that doesn't make sense. Is that even possible? No, that couldn't be possible. I can't believe they're doing that. And we look it up and we're like, oh, they are doing that. It's unbelievable. The nations are deceived. In fact, if Satan was bound right now, we, we, we recognize that the, Jesus promised the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. And that's why we're here, right? Because the gates of hell have not prevailed. The church is still growing. People are still coming to Christ. But at the same time, there's clear warnings in Scripture. Peter tells us that be on your guard. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion waiting to devour his prey. Man, if Satan is bound, we don't need to be on our guard. But no, we have this enemy prowling around. Jesus told Peter he, he prayed for him. He interceded on his behalf because Satan wanted to sift him like wheat. We wouldn't need that type of intercession. The early church, Ananias and Sapphira, remember when Peter spoke to them, he said, how is it that Satan has convinced you to lie to the Spirit? If Satan was bound and he's no longer deceiving, why is it that there is so much deception? I propose that Satan is not bound. There is coming a time when he will be bound. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be a good time. But it's not now. And, of course, if he is bound now, what does it mean in verse 3, at the end of verse 3, where it says, after that he must be released for a little while. Man, what's it going to look like when Satan's released if he's bound right now? So when you don't take the plain understanding of the Scripture, the literal interpretation of the Scripture, you end up having to kind of do contortions and, and bend around and try to figure out how it can make sense of this. And I'll, I'll just tell you, I think the... The, the literal interpretation is the easiest. So 
with, that, with that said, what's the whole point of this millennial reign? What's the purpose of it? Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. I saw souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or the image and not received its mark on their foreheads, their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. We're, we're entering into a new era, and this new era is with Christ reigning and the saints reigning with him. It's, it's a, and it's a different kind of era. Listen, what is the purpose of this? Ezekiel 37, 14, God says something awesome. He's, he's actually talking to Ezekiel about this valley of dry bones, and, and it's a cool passage. And he's talking about resurrecting Israel, that he's going to call the bones out of the desert. If you, if you want to know a like, cool, apocalyptic type, type story, go read Ezekiel 37. But in that, Ezekiel is kind of like, how can this be? I mean, that's really, he's looking at this going, is this even possible? We've been laid to waste. And what you're saying, God, is so much better and bigger than what I could even imagine. And God says this to Ezekiel. He said, then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. God says this over and over in the Old Testament. I have spoken, I am the Lord, and I will do it. Listen, if God says he will do something, he will surely do it. He doesn't need us to soften it up. Or try to explain it away. Just let God handle his business. And, and we're going to get to sit back and go, oh, cool. You told me you do that and you're doing it. And, and it's, it's a much more of a pleasure. So what's the deal with this millennial reign? Well, the millennial reign of Christ is the final fulfillment of prophecy and outstanding promises. Outstanding promises. That's right. There's a lot of outstanding promises and prophecy to be fulfilled starting in the Old Testament moving forward. If you remember Jesus, when he showed up in Nazareth, during his ministry, he taught in the synagogue. And he went, he, he took up the Isaiah scroll, he opened it up, it's Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2, and he began reading it. And he read this from the Isaiah scroll, and then he said, then, then he stopped mid part of verse 2, he just stops. And he closes it up, sit, and he puts it away, and he goes and sits back down. And, and this is how it was in the church, it would be like, if I just stopped preaching, and God is like, sweet, we get out early. No. Uh, if, if I went, I just stopped preaching. I went and sat down. And you guys would all just kind of look at me like, okay, what, you know, is there something more in that? And Jesus says, today in your hearing, this has been fulfilled. This scripture has been fulfilled. And, we're like, and, and, and so the first part has literally been fulfilled. But when you read the second part, that hasn't been fulfilled yet. That second part has to do with his millennial reign. What he's going to do with Israel. Why would we take prophecy and say, oh yeah, that was literally fulfilled, but the other part doesn't mean, it's not meant to be literally fulfilled. It's, it's figurative. We don't do that. Turn with me over to Isaiah 61 and verse 1. Actually, it will be up here on the screen. There we go. Okay. Let's look at these first passages. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Let's just talk about that passage for, for one minute. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. When did that happen? Oh yeah, Jesus coming up out of the Jordan. And they say what? I saw the Spirit descend upon Jesus like a dove. There's the, the anointing of the Spirit. Uh, he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Oh, okay, so we have the, the, the physically impoverished people. 
but especially the spiritually impoverished people. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the kingdom of God. When you recognize your spiritual poverty, you're ready to start coming to Jesus. You're ready to start receiving what he has for you. He says, he said that he had brought good news to the poor, has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. You know what? The fact is, is broken hearts are a lot of times what bring us to Jesus. Because sin wrecks havoc in our lives. Sin breaks us so badly. Sin causes us to have depression, uh, broken relationships with each other. And, and sin causes a, that broken heart to start asking questions, those deep questions in life. Why am I here? What is the purpose of life? And those answers are only found in Jesus Christ. He, he proclaimed liberty to the captives and the opening of the prisons to those who are bound. Can't help but Jesus going to that tomb of Lazarus. On the way there to, to go celebrate and, and grieve his friend's death, celebrate his friend's life and grieve his death. And by the way, I think a memorial service, the celebration aspect, is really a Christian thing. It's not so much a Jewish thing. But they're going on the way to the tomb. Jesus says, I'm going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Let, let's go raise him from the dead. So he already knows what he's going to do. He, he, he's on his way. we got to go. In fact, some of the disciples kind of warn him. They say, hey, Jesus, you know, people in Jerusalem, that's near Jerusalem, and people are looking to kill you. He says he's got to go, and Thomas says, let's go. You know, Thomas always gets a bad rap for being doubting Thomas. But if you read about Thomas, he, a lot of times he's like, let's go. <laughs> so uh, anyway, so they get to the tomb, and Jesus wept. Man, one of Jesus' good friends passed away. Have you had a good friend pass away? You know the heartache. You know the pain of that. Jesus knows the pain of that. Is there anything in life that holds us more in bondage or in captivity than death in the grave? There's nothing. I told you on Easter that the statistics on death are one out of every one. It, it, it's going to happen. Jesus wept, seeing our bondage, but praise God, he came to conquer. He came to proclaim liberty to the captives. He came to open up the prisons to those who are bound. And he called Lazarus out of that grave. And with that same power of the Father in heaven that he calls Lazarus out of the grave, the Father called Jesus out of the grave. It's the same power, resurrection power. That whole first part is fulfilled to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That, that's where Jesus stopped, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What, what, what about that? What does that mean? You, you know what the Bible tells us? The Bible says that we're dead in our sins and transgressions and, and that we are enemies of God. We, we deserve judgment, the Bible tells us, because of our sin. The soul that sins, it shall die, the Bible tells us, because God's a holy God. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, the Bible tells us. But praise be to Jesus Christ when he was on that cross and he says, it is finished. I have finished the work of redemption, redeeming you back from the dead. I have covered you with my blood. I have traded your unrighteousness for my righteousness. This amazing thing happens. We find favor with God. We're favored. We're not only favored by God, but then God says, you're a child of mine. He adopts us. Not only does he adopt, adopt us, but he makes us heirs with Christ. It's an incredible thing that happens at that cross. 
So Jesus stopped there in, in, in Nazareth. He said, this today has been fulfilled in your hearing. I'm the guy, okay, that this scripture is talking about. But what about that last part? The last part says, we'll just read it real quick. To proclaim that you're the Lord's favorite, here it goes. And the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen, vine dressers, but, and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priest of the Lord, and they shall speak of you as the ministers of God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. This last part has yet to be fulfilled for Israel. This last part is yet to be done in Zion. And if you remember that passage we read in verse 6 of Revelation says, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. The millennial reign is fulfilling that outstanding promises and of prophecy that, that God has promised to the Jews. That's what the, the millennial reign is all about. What else is, what other fulfillments? Well, if you remember, God made a covenant with Abraham and he promised Abraham a certain amount of land. He told Abraham, hey, Abraham, um, I, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And, it, and this is what he says in Genesis 15, 18. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying, to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. The land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kenamanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Now, being someone with a little bit of ADD here, I zero in on the Rephaim because they don't have ites. And I know these guys are really shady, right? So, no. But, but here God says to Abraham, I'm going to give you and your descendants these borders. This land is going to be yours. And, and the best part about it is God said, Abraham, I'm making the covenant with you. So he said, Abraham, go out, cut up the animals, split them in two, get the dove, kill that, and you sit down. That's what he told Abraham to do. Now, I, I'm really glad we, we nowadays can sign a contract versus having to cut up animals to buy a car or anything like that. You know, it, it's, a, it's a better system. So he says, Abraham, do this. Uh, get all the animals ready. So Abraham does. He sits down. And what does God do? God himself comes and moves through the pieces of the animal. And, and what God was saying is, the way covenants were made is you'd walk through these pieces of the animal and saying, hey, if I break my covenant with you, then let this be to me what these animals are. God said, Abraham, I'm moving through this. God didn't say to Abraham, okay, Abraham, let's go through this. But here's the deal. If you screw this up, you're going to be like these guys. You're going to remove my promises. No, God says, I'm doing this. And he walked through the pieces. And he promised Abraham and his descendants this land. And the closest they ever got to it was King Solomon. King Solomon had most of this land for, for a part of the time. But then he, he lost it all. We, we know that the, he lost the blessing because of his sin, his son's sin. And it was, that blessing was taken away. But the promise still stands of what God was going to do for Abraham. That promise is still there because God said, I am the Lord, I will do it. Trust in me. If God makes us a promise, you better believe he will do it. 
he, he will because he's the Lord. And so, so we know that there's a fulfillment that needs to take place of the land. What are going to be the borders of Israel when Jesus comes back? Well, we've already got them right here in Genesis chapter 15, verses 18 through 21. Then later on, God makes a promise with David, if you remember. The fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. God says this to David in Samuel 7, 2 Samuel 7. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. You shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So first thing is God says, hey, guess what? When you lie down, I'm going to establish your house forever. I'm going to build a house for you. And I'm going to establish your throne. God gives this promise to David. Now we know that they missed out on the blessing. But here's what happened. As soon as Solomon's son started sinning, we, we know that Assyria came in. And Assyria started taxing Israel. Then Babylon came in. And they started taxing Israel and controlling Israel. And eventually they carried Israel away in captivity. And since that point in time, Israel has never been a sovereign nation again until 1948. 1948 was the first time they became a sovereign nation again. They're still missing a king. They're still missing the king on the throne. The, but... But since from that time, from the Babylonian captivity and the Syrian captivity to 1948, Israel has not been sovereign. And God promised it would happen. That's what the Jews were expecting. They were expecting Messiah to come, kick out the Romans, but he didn't do that. He went to the cross because that, that time had not yet come. So God gives us David a couple promises. At first he says that, that his name would be great. Second, he says that he would have rest from his enemies. Have you noticed how much rest Israel is getting from their enemies lately? <laughs> that was a joke. <laughs> Israel's constantly fighting everybody. The world hates Israel. And we look at it and kind of scratch our heads and go, why, why does everybody hate Israel? You know, it's just been going on that way. They, they haven't yet received rest from their enemies. Third, David was promised that he would have a house that would last forever. Fourth, he was promised a throne that would be established forever. And, of course, Luke 1, 32 and 33 goes into that prophecy when Jesus is born. But the, the, the idea of a throne and a house that would last forever, well, it's got to be more than just a normal guy to receive that throne. In fact, when we think about this, we don't have, Jesus has not yet sat on the throne of David. You say, well, wait a minute. Doesn't Scripture say that Jesus finished his work, he ascended into heaven, he sat down at the right hand of the Father? Yeah, he did. But, but to sit down means I'm finished with a work. I've done that work of redemption. I'm sitting down. The throne that Jesus sat down on was not the throne of David. Remember Jesus said before, Abraham was, I am. Paul goes into great detail in Colossians saying that Christ is the preeminent one. Before, uh, before creation, all things were created through him. Nothing was created without him. Jesus Christ is the preeminent one. The throne that Jesus sat back down on was the throne he already had. Now, what we're talking about is not a literal chair. We're not talking like an old chair, like, ooh, I'm sitting on the throne. You know, but we're talking about a seat of power. We're talking about the, that, that, that power, place of power to rule. Where Jesus sat back down was long before David's throne. The Jews are waiting for Messiah to sit down on David's throne. That's what the millennial reign is all about. Lastly, David has promised that uh, assurance that David's kingdom would never pass away permanently. And that's established through Jesus Christ. 
the millennial reign will bring about a time of peace. Isaiah 2 tells us that, that nations will beat their, their weapons and their swords into plowshares. It tells us that the child will put his hand over the den of the adder and, or the viper and not get bit. We see that the wolf will lay down with the lamb. So we see that there's this time of peace ushered in where the natural order of things that you and I know today is not happening. The nations are all go, will be all going to Zion, to Jesus' throne, to learn God's ways. That's the po point of the millennial reign of Christ. That's what we see happening in the millennial reign of Christ. So who gets to participate in this reign? Well, there's a few people that get to participate that we can see in this passage. Satan does not get to participate. He's, he's bound up. Jesus gets to be there. Hallelujah. It's all about him and always will be. And there's only one way that we could have a, 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 a political system that's so perfect, and that's with Jesus Christ. So Jesus is there. We know that the saints from chapter 19, those who were clothed in white linen and come back with them, they're there. That's you and me. We get to be there. And, of course, um, the rapture has already happened at this point. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that at that at that loud shout, when, when, when the rapture happens, the dead in Christ rise first, and we who are still alive are caught up to be with the Lord in the air. And it talks about that the, the dead in Christ will receive their resurrection bodies first, then the, those who are alive at the rapture. So they receive their resurrection bodies. Now we also have all those who are martyred during the, tri the tribulation period. They receive their resurrection bodies. And no, notice the term there in verse 5, this is the first resurrection. Now, this is not a, um, so much a, a point in time as rather an order of things, okay. The first resurrection is anyone who dies in Christ. The one who shares in the first resurrection is those who have trusted in Christ. So we have the church, they've trusted in Christ, they share in the first resurrection. We have the saints who have made it through the tribulation period, who have not worshipped the beast or taken his mark, they worshipped the antichrist or taken his mark. They are part of the first resurrection. They receive the re And if you want to know, well, what's the resurrection body all about? Well, just look at Jesus. He's the first fruits from the dead. We're promised that we're going to have a, a body like his. So that's going to be legit. Too legit to quit. Oh, oh. Okay. You're welcome, guys. 80s reference. There you go. Art had an 80s party last night. So, anyway. <laughs> so, uh so we can look to Jesus and see the type of resurrection body. So they get to be there. Last group of people that get to be there are those who have survived through the tribulation and not worshipped the Antichrist or taken the mark of the beast. All the rest of them are judged when Jesus gets back. So this is kind of a weird time, right? You have those ruling with Christ and reigning with him in resurrection bodies. And you have those who are not in resurrection bodies going about in the regular order of things. And he was like, that, well, that doesn't make sense. That's weird. And I said... All I can say is, it's God's word, so you deal with it. <laughs> like, I'm just, that's just what it tells us. So uh, it's going to be a different order of things. It's also weird for a kid to play with an adder and not get bit. It's also weird for a wolf not to eat a lamb. I mean, those are all weird things, right? But this is the type of the, the reign of Christ that we're going to see happen. And then, of course, we see the defeat of Satan. Afterwards, Satan is released for a thousand years uh, from at the end of the thousand years, look at what he goes out to do. He goes out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. Now, Gog and Magog, we're not totally sure who these are. I don't think these are the same Gog and Magog of Ezekiel. 
and, and we don't really have time to go into that right now. It could be that Gog is the leader and Magog is the country. It could be the same Gog and Magog. We, we just don't know. And you can read the end of Ezekiel if you want more information about that. But, but here's what we know. Satan goes out deceiving, and what does man do? They believe his lies. <laughs> Isn't it interesting? God, and, and I, I mean, I ask the same question too. Wait a minute. God's got perfect peace going. Why does he even allow this to happen? You know, I mean, that's what I want to know. But the fact is, is I, I, I can only speculate because I, I just don't know. But I, I wonder if God is showing us that, that man's potential and desire for sin is so much so that there's going to be some during this millennial reign that will actually just resent the reign of Christ, thinking they can do it better. And Satan, when he gets let out, they actually think they can do something about it. I think it also shows God's justice because Following this is going to be the great white throne judgment. And, and when God judges, we're all going to be like, amen, that was a good judgment, God. We're not going to disagree with God's justice. We're going to recognize how good and perfect it is. That, that his love and his justice are never in conflict like you and I are. God can be just and judge and still love infinitely. It's an amazing thing. And so we're going to see this. We're going to say his justice is good, but what happens? Well, people get deceived again, and there's another battle. And finally, that battle is waged, and then Satan is thrown into the burning lake of sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are, and they're tormented day and night forever. Well, with all this said, let me ask you guys a question. Are you preparing for the reign of Christ? I mean, that's one thing I think Augustine was really good in his book, City of God. He, he, he talked about preparing now. Now is the time to learn to be a citizen of the city of God. Now is the time to set yourself apart and prepare for his reign. And I absolutely believe that, that now is your chance. And preparation starts with a mindset. Peter asked this question. He says, since all things are thus to be dissolved, what things? Well, all, all this stuff, it's all going to go away. It's all going to be dissolved. That all the things we strive for and work for, eventually that's, it's all going to go away. So Peter says, what sort of people ought you to be in, li in lives of holiness and godliness? It's a wonderful question to ask. Knowing where the, what's going to happen in the end, having been given the notice, just like the Minutemen were given the notice, what will you do now? How will you live? How will you respond to the call of Jesus Christ? I think it's a good question to ask. You know, the Minutemen were, were really effective at Lexington and Concord. But historians tell us that later on in the Revolutionary War, they weren't so effective. In fact, they kind of worked a little bit opposite because they, they didn't practice as much. They, they weren't training as much. And the Minutemen, when, when the British regulars were marching through and they started getting shot at by the Minutemen, most of the, ammo, the ammunition was going over their heads and whatnot. And the British were like, okay, it's cool. It's just the militia. We can keep going. They weren't, they, they weren't practicing like they were. They weren't preparing for the battle like they did at Lexington and Concord that gave them such a great victory. Paul tells us in Titus, to training to, to us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people, for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Paul tells us, 
Renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Renounce them. Be done with them. Turn away from them. Listen, if you're struggling still with ungodliness and worldly passions, go to the Lord. Ask the Holy Spirit for victory in this area. His word is powerful and effective. It's there for equipping us for righteousness. We should be able to go to the Lord. Renounce uh, ungodliness and worldly passion. Instead, be self-controlled. Live upright and godly. What does godly mean? Godly means God-like. It means like God. To, to, to be pursuing after the things that God likes. Pur- pursuing after the things that please God. Well, how do I know what godliness is? Ta-da! <laughs> That's how you know what godliness is. You get into his word. You see, you, you learn from Je- Jesus Christ. Anyone who knows Jesus knows the Father. He's the revelation from God. If you want to know godliness, know Jesus. And then don't forget that Christ redeemed us with a purpose. The army has um, standing orders. They're called general orders. There's three of them. And these general orders are what um, you're just supposed to know, and Steve probably knows the general orders, but I had to go look them up. These general orders basically cover anything that basically can keep you out of trouble. Like when in doubt, go to these orders, you'll be good. And if you have any questions, go to these orders. Here's what the orders are. I will guard everything within the limits of my post and quit my post only when properly relieved. Second general order, I will obey my special orders and perform all my duties in a military manner. Third general order, I will report violations of my special orders, emergencies, and anything not covered in my instructions to the commander of the relief. So these orders just cover everything. Just do this when in doubt. Do these orders, and you're good. You're a good soldier. Jesus left us with the general orders. He, he actually did that. And those orders aren't just for pastors. Those orders are for the church. Go, therefore, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Those are your standing orders, church. Go make disciples. That, well, wait a minute, Pastor. Don't, isn't that what you're paid to do? No, I'm not paid to do that. that I, I get to make disciples because I'm a Christian, just like you. Because I follow Christ, I get to go forth sharing the gospel. I get paid to go pick up trash and deal with problems <laughs> and do things like that. That's what I get paid to do. I get paid to take high schoolers places and go, no, come back. <laughs> Don't get lost. Uh, you got to go to the hospital. So <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I don't get paid. It's not a pastor's profession of making disciples. It's a Christian's profession. It's part of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Those are your orders. So if you want to prepare for the kingdom, for the reign of Christ, make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. That's what we need to be doing. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. God, we thank you so much that you've given us orders. Lord, we don't have to wonder or question what to do, but God, you've given us your word. Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to remember our purpose. Help us to prepare for your kingdom. Lord, help us not to grow weary or tired of doing good. 
but to be set apart to serve you, training ourselves now to be good citizens of your kingdom. I pray your blessing be on each and every one. And, Lord, I'm so thankful that if you say it, you will do it. You fulfill all your promises. You said that it is finished on that cross, that my sin is cleansed for me, and you have done it. So I thank you for that, Lord, and I look forward to your coming. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.